morning, York Alliance. It's me again. And in case you're puzzled, I do not have any announcements to share. Uh, it is not my turn, as you noticed, to deliver announcements this morning. My turn will come again in a couple of weeks. I'm preaching today. Uh, so that is uh, what my focus has been for the last couple of weeks. And I'd just like to share a few introductory mark, remarks or comments about a couple of things that uh, came to mind this morning. First of all, to Brent and his wife I just met this morning, Liz. It was great to reconnect a little bit. Uh, thank you for your encouragement in the lobby. We uh, were swapping stories and uh, encouraging each other as we were about to speak this morning. My parents and I moved to York, to York and started attending York Alliance after I graduated from college. So Brent and I knew each other, but we weren't part of the same social circles. I did, however, hear a lot about Brent and his brother Quay and his sister Tasha because I doctored with his dad for a number of years. I told one story about his dad in the first service, and I'm going to share a different story in this service. Um, you know, I get bored if I do the same thing over and over. Um, I had a number of health scares, uh, and this one particular uh, health scare lasted well over a year. And I would see Brent's dad in the office, and we would talk about treatment plans and ideas and meds and choices and, and those kinds of things. And then in church, I would see Brent's dad, and he always met me in the lobby with a hug. And he would say, I am praying for you. And he prayed with me in his office in those days too. And whether he was visiting me in the hospital during that year or so, or talking to me in his office or here in church, Brent's dad always had the same message. If you cry, I'll cry. And that was, um, I am your number one fan. I am your number one doctor. And I am your big brother and I will get you through this. And as you can see, he did. Um, those health scares uh, fortunately went away. I, have, I could tell you a long story about that, but I won't. So Brent, I'm so glad that we got to reconnect. After hearing all about you know, Brent you know, as I was doctoring with his dad, now I've caught up about his dad. So he can then send uh, a hello back from me to dad and mom. I would also just like to say that I have a couple of people that I would like to thank before I really start my sermon, and that would be Jonas and Sam. Uh, both of them have recently shared testimonials, and I would just like to formally and in front of everybody say how much I really appreciated those uh, testimonies. I saw a lot of myself in Jonas's story because I am a workaholic. Um, I am hoping to improve my ways, but it doesn't look promising. But I do thank you, Jonas, uh, for the words that you did share. And then Sam, uh, several weeks ago, also shared his testimony. And one of the things that caught my attention was Sam said he attended church, but he reached a point where he just didn't want to engage, and he got good at it. And I would tell Sam that I really perfected it. I would come to church and decided, okay, I have to be here, so I'll be here. But if anyone came up and talked to me, I could be friendly, because, you know, it's fake it till you make it. And at one point in time in my life, I decided... I just don't even need to attend church. So I not only ignored everybody and wouldn't engage, I just stopped attending. It had nothing to do with God. I never had an issue with God. It was God's people, unfortunately. And so as I was preparing my sermon, I ran into this poor pitiful letter that I wrote about 16, 18 years ago that expounded to a pastor all the many reasons why I would no longer attend a church. And I was quite proud of that letter. I hadn't seen that in a long time, and as I read it, it made me think of Sam, and I thought, 
man, I hope he really gets back on his journey a lot quicker than I did. So Sam and Jonas, thank you for your testimonies. Those words were very meaningful and helpful to me. And I would be remiss if we didn't recognize the fact that this is Memorial Day weekend. And so there are a number of us who are connected with uh, military men and women who have served. So I would just like to publicly and personally say thank you very much for your service. It means a lot to me because my dad was in the army and so I know the sacrifices that are there and I know the importance of your service. So thank you very much. Moving on, um, I'm in a scary uh, spot this morning. I told the first service that um, I was trying not to listen to this little voice that said, run. And so I survived the first service, so maybe we got it for the second one. I am also a little nervous because there's this platform up here and I'm not normally restricted to space uh, when I teach, but I've decided I'm low tech this morning. So that's my second fear. I am now used to teaching with technology, and so at my command, I can change from a PowerPoint to a DVD or share something on the internet. If students ask me a question, I can immediately look it up on the internet. Um, but I apparently have a heathen laptop. It does not like church. And so the last few times I have tried to preach or teach from a laptop, it's done all kinds of wicked, crazy things. And so I said, today, I am outsmarting technology. So we're going old tech. The problem is you're going to have to put up with uh, me in reading glasses, and that doesn't always go real well. Sometimes I forget to put them on. Sometimes I forget to take them up, off. The advantage is when I have them on, I can't see the clock. So <laughs> too bad for you guys. So let me start in this way. Think back to your childhood. Were you a rule follower or a rule breaker? Did your parents have really strict rules that you had to follow to the letter of the law, so to say? Or were your parents more lax about rules? My parents were somewhere in the middle, not too strict, you know, not too lax, probably just about right. And if you ask my parents, they would tell you that I was essentially a rule follower. I was ornery enough that I could figure out all kinds of trouble to cause within the bounds of the rules that I was given. And so if you ask my mom, who is here, um, I bribed her enough to miss the first service, but I didn't bribe her enough to miss the second service. So she will confirm I was a pretty good kid, except for once. And the long story short about that one time is this. I used to work in Harrisburg, and I worked this really odd shift from 1 o'clock until. I was supposed to clock out at 9.30, but more often than not, I would leave at 10, 10.30, 11, midnight, or after. And this one particular night, everything and anything that could possibly go wrong did. And by the time I left, I was madder than a hornet. I don't know about you, but I have different stages of anger. There's mad, and there's mad mad, and then there's torqued. I was torqued. I was just mad beyond consolation, just mad. A few weeks, maybe a couple of months before this shift, I had just bought a little red sports car. It hadn't really been tested and broken in as much as one should break in a little red sports car. Anger and a red sports car probably are not a good combination. And so as I was heading down Route 73 south to York, I looked at the speedometer and it said 80 miles an hour. That didn't worry me at all. That was normal cruising speed for me in any car going south on 83. 
and I didn't worry about state troopers because having commuted that road a lot, I knew all the state troopers hiding places. And before I continue, I just want to make sure there's no state troopers in the audience because <laughs> I don't know the statutes of limitations. So if you are one, do this. At any rate, 80 miles an hour became 90 miles an hour, and then 100. And then at 110, something magical happened. And if you know cars, at 110 miles an hour, the spoiler effect of my car took effect, and the car went whoosh. I, can, I work with boys, so I can make sound effects with cars. That car started to hug the road like you can't believe. So then I thought, how fast can I go? 110 became 115, then 120, then 125. And by then, anger was gone. I was in sheer elation. And then I started to think, I'm quitting my job. I am destined to be a race car driver. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what I'm supposed to do. Unfortunately, at 135 miles an hour, anger to elation changed to sheer panic. And I saw those infamous red and blue lights circling on top of a cruiser, and I thought, oh my goodness. If they catch me, I'm going to jail. I will never drive again. Life as I have known it is no more. So I did what any sensible person would do. I continued down 83 at 135 miles an hour. And the first exit I got to, I got off turned the headlights off, and I went every possible twist and turn and back road I could find to my home in Dallas town, snuck in, if you can picture a little red car sneaking into the garage. Garage door went down and I sat there and thought, man, was that fun. <sighs> but boy, was that stupid, okay? That's not the only stupid thing I ever did with a car, but I can only share one per sermon. Did I learn anything from that experience? Yes, I learned two things. One, I don't like living outside the bounds of the law. I broke the law. Someone could have seriously been hurt, including myself, or worse. I didn't like that feeling. And so as a result of that experience, I no longer speed in three digits anymore. <laughs> you got the point. So do you know anyone who breaks rules, who breaks laws? I'm sure we all do. I teach in a classroom. Actually, I'm in several classrooms a day uh, throughout the day in my job. And I work with students from ages this year, seven to 16. I don't need to say more. You know what kids are like. I also live in a condominium community where I am serving uh, a three-year term as an executive um, board member currently serving as president, and I can assure you, when my term is up, I can not run fast enough from this position. I work with a number of uh, people, well, not a number. We have several chronic rule breakers in the community. Another board member and I are pretty well convinced one of our residents has set as a goal to see if he can break every single rule we have in the community. What's worse, we have a certain generation in our community who have decided Instead of complying with all the established rules that we have all lived by for the last 20 years, they would just rather change the rules. So we'll see how that goes. This week in the news, I heard uh, a, a news reporter state that the murder rate in York City at this time this year is more than doubled what that rate was this time last year. 
We all know statewide and nationwide crime is ever increasing. And unfortunately, we heard this week about another school shooting that I can tell you has left myself and my colleagues um, pretty well rocked, wondering when the day comes that we will have to defend our classrooms. So what's the issue? Uh, I am going to let politicians and talking heads and radio and TV programs try to analyze, discuss, and debate whether all of the rule breaking and the law breaking is the cause of age, generational tendencies, socioeconomic issues and status, racial oppression and tension, mental health problems, or even the lack of gun control. That is not my purpose this morning. I would, however, say that the diagnosis of all of these issues of crime and rule breaking can be narrowed down to one simple thing, and that is a morality problem. We lack um, a moral compass in our country, and this often happens the further as individuals or as a country we stray away from God's moral law. As C.S. Lewis said in his work as he was trying to explain a concept called universal morality where almost every culture has some form of moral law, he said, a man does not call a crooked line, he does not call a line crooked, unless he has some idea of a straight line. So it seems to me that many people nowadays are trying to explain crooked lines without really realizing that there is a straight line or there is a moral code, moral law that God has set before us that has stood the test of time and that God still expects us to obey. So Andrew is going to read for us chapter 20 in Exodus, verses 1 to 21. And then we'll take about the next two or three hours together to analyze that chapter. And God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor 
your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not cover, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Thank you, Andrew. How did you like the sound effects of hearing him from the balcony? I think the only thing we needed was maybe some claps of thunder. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will quiet my heart. Give me the words that you wish for me to speak. Thank you for giving me the time to prepare in a really hectic time in a school teacher's um, year. Father, we are all um, struggling in some way, or we're eager to hear your word. And I pray that you will anoint this time, that you will help us to hear what it is today that you need for us to hear from you today. Thank you for sending your son to die and for giving us uh, the example uh, that you have through him and how we serve you. In your name, amen. As I was preparing for this sermon and read and reread chapter 20, it seemed to me like the chapter itself breaks down into three parts. So it should have been fairly easy for someone to prepare a sermon about Exodus 20. As I looked at the chapter, it seemed to me like the chapter broke down into a reminder, the rules, and a response. And so that's not my original titles, but after viewing Brian Wade's sermon, I decided, you know, Brian had this great alliteration of three C's during his sermon. It was companionship, courage, and consolement. And so Brian is a preaching cohort classmate of mine, and I thought, I have to rethink this. We need three of something so I can not let Brian get ahead of me. So that's why we have reminder, rules, and response. So Brian Wade, he's not here. Wherever you are, and this morning's service, I said, take that. But let's make that a little more positive, and I can thank him for the inspiration to come up with those titles. That sounds a little better, doesn't it? So let's take a look at the reminder. Who is God? What do those first two verses in chapter 20 tell us about God? And I'm just going to read these first two verses and explain a couple of things. And God spoke all these words. Notice God spoke. In my studies, I learned that there are many words for God. There's El, El Shaddai, Elohim, Jehovah, Yahweh, and probably more that I have forgotten. This is Elohim speaking to the Israelites, the God of all gods. 
He speaks to many of us. He speaks to his people in various ways. He speaks through our conscience, through a voice, through others, through nature, um, through all kinds of ways. But this is the only time God ever spoke to mankind the way that he spoke to the Israelites at Mount, Saint, uh, Mount Sinai. In all of his grandeur, glory, and power, he wanted the Israelites to stand up and take notice. And so God is sharing his own law in his own voice so that the Israelites pay attention. Verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the Lord your God is the first numbered commandment in Judaism. And notice that these commandments are given to those in the faith community. This was given to believers. This was not given to all mankind. And the reason for the Ten Commandments given to Moses and the Israelites at this time was based on the covenant relationship that God already had and wanted to continue. And so in Exodus 20, we learn that God asserts his own authority. He has the right to enact his own law and shares that with the Israelites, for he is the Lord. He was their God, and he had brought them out of Egypt, so he has every right to demand certain things. The next phrase who brought you out of Egypt? This is now Yahweh speaking to the Israelites. Yahweh means I am your God. So this is not just the God of the ages. He's making that personal connection with the Israelites. In so doing, he's also recognizing that he is a God of historical acts. He has done down through the ages with the Israelites every single thing he has said that he would do. He acted redemptively for the Israelites. So they would sin, he would share a, a covenant and expect you know, that they would repent of their sins and so the, the tradition continued. Israelites would have understood the process of Exodus 20 and the manner in which God shared this because this was very typical of Hittite treaties at the time. Um, and so this is the way that treaties were arranged between kingdoms. It also establishes the authenticity uh, of God giving Moses the Ten Commandments. We can see and recognize the traditional form of covenants. In so doing, it's also crucial to understand that this is a personal God. This is a caring and loving God who spoke to the Israelites because he wanted to support, help, protect, and uh, have them be obedient. We should also note that he was addressing ordinary Israelites, not religious uh, and theolog theological experts. He also spoke in simple terms. How hard can it be? Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. You know, our children can understand that. Listening is a different story. God spoke directly to the Israelites so that they knew they were God's people, not Moses' people. Maybe if, if Moses had have been the one to deliver the Ten Commandments, they would have misunderstood that. And so God also gave the Ten Commandments directly to all Israelites so that they all recognized and realized that they were all within the law. No one was above the law. And so what is it that we're reminded of in the first part of the chapter? We're dealing with Yahweh, the personal God that we can love, honor, and cherish. So let's look at the rules themselves. Uh, just by way of background, remember that God had led the Israelites out of Egypt. They have now been delivered out of uh, bondage from slavery of the Egyptians. This is also a crucial time in Israel's history. This is the beginnings of their uh, starting to become a nation. Uh, 
and God is continuing his covenant relationship with them. Notice that the Ten Commandments are given to the Israelites after they left Egypt. I think that's significant because it would have been very difficult for the Israelites to obey the moral law that God set forth for them if they had have been living under Egyptian law. And so as we read the Ten Commandments and we continue to study and talk about those, we should realize that God reveals himself to us in very personal, real, moral categories. He's not a highfalutin philosophical God. Um, if you can use this expression, you know, his feet, so to speak, hit the ground running. Um, and he expects obedience from us. The covenant itself, Israelites were used to covenants. All of their business arrangements and business dealings were always arranged through a covenant. And so there was always two equal parties. And so they would have understand, understood God's new covenant with them and the language thereof. An example of this would be a marriage. Um, in the day, one father might have said to another father, I'll give you four cows if you give me your daughter so that my son can have a wife. And so marriage contracts were arranged through a covenant. We read about three different covenants in the first five books of the Bible. I would use that word, but I've butchered it all week, so I'm not even going to try. So in the first five books of the Bible, we have the covenant between Noah, with Noah, with Abraham, and now we're reading about Moses and the Sinai covenant that was established with Moses and the Israelites. If you continue to look at covenant tradition and how the covenant or the law has been given to the Israelites in Exodus 20, this covenant is based on a religious leader and his people. So they're not two equal parties. This was also based on God's initiative, not man's. So God is giving new revelation about himself. This is when he identifies himself as Yahweh, or at least reminds the Israelites. So he's reminding them, I am who I am. I am your God. He is also telling Israelites that they have new moral demands, such as keeping the Sabbath as the day of rest. The rules themselves. Israel's laws are very distinctive from other neighboring countries and kingdoms during that time. <coughs> Their treaties often reflected this uncompromising idea of monotheism. So when the Israelites, I'll work through it, trust me. <coughs> At any rate, the law, the Ten Commandments, otherwise known as the Ten Words or the Decalogue, reflected this uncompromising um, theological idea of monotheism or having just one God. The Israelites also, through their law, had a remarkable concern for underprivileged, such as for slaves, strangers, women, and orphans, and we see that reflected through their laws and practices. <coughs> to continue, the laws were written in what is called an apodictic style. That just means that the law was written, thou shalt not, or thou shalt. And this is unique and peculiar to the Israelites. Some have argued whether the Ten Commandments were given in a positive or a negative sense. Those that argue it's positive have said, 
The first assertion is, I am your God, and so then everything after that is positive. In continuing to examine the Ten Commandments themselves, let's notice that the first four commandments are about our duty and relationship to God, that horizontal relationship, while the second, the last six commandments, speak to the horizontal relationships, the relationships and duties that we have to one another. In the Ten Commandments, God shows concern for all of life. He sets out standards for governing worship, work, family relationships, human life, marriage, sex, property, speech, and thought. (coughs) So I had a question while I was reading and preparing. Did he leave anything out? And I guess not, or we would have had even more commandments. So it seems like he's covered everything we need to worry about and be concerned about and how we should live. God made us. He made us alone. He alone should be teaching us how to behave. So I thought of my younger sister. When her sons, my nephews, were a lot younger than they are today, and they were naughty or misbehaving, my sister often used the expression, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. Sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? But maybe that's sort of how God feels about us, too. Remember that the Ten Commandments were written on stone tablets and they were stored and preserved in the Ark of the Covenant. And so these ten words uh, were and are the basis of Israel's law and still is today in most cultures. So let's examine the Ten Commandments themselves. And if you were my students and you heard the word ten, you would say, are we really going to listen to all ten of them? And the answer is yes, we are. So we are. So the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And let me just share a brief comment about this commandment. This is written in the second person singular negated imperfect, right? It's what you get for having an English teacher speak to you on Memorial uh, Weekend. All that means is second person is you. So it's written in the form of what you should do. You is both collective and individual. So I could say you on this side of the sanctuary versus you, Mrs. Ilgenfritz. The notion of negative is, there's just a negative in the sentence. There's either no or not, thou shalt not. And then the imperfect just means the action has started and it has continued to today. So God is telling them, you know, enough of this. And this comment before God doesn't mean I, the Lord your God, will be put above all your other gods. It means have no other gods and get all those other gods out of my face. Be gone with them. You shouldn't. And so this was one of the worries that God had. So here's a little interesting uh, point of my studies this week. And so you'll see that I'm going to tell you what Jesus said about each commandment. This um, kind of will make things uh, a little more interesting when we look at the Ten Commandments. So what did Jesus say about having no other gods? He said, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So we are to have no other gods, whether they're pagan gods or anything we put before God. The second commandment is about making idols. God doesn't like idols. In this particular time period, um, pagans and, and other cultures worshiped pagan idols. And so they wanted to have an image or a carving. God cannot be limited to a carving or an image. 
He's God of everything. He's not just a deity about one particular spiritual aspect of being a God. The very word worship in Hebrew says and means bow down and serve. And so God did not want the Israelites serving or bowing down to any other particular gods. If we continue with the commandment, we also hear that God is a jealous God. And so if you think about your spouse or you know, someone that you care deeply about, if you are jealous you know, about the time that someone else is getting with that person, it just means you have a strong affection for them. And that's the way God feels about us. He wants to be our God. He wants to have a union and a special relationship with us. What does Jesus say? He said, no servant can serve two masters uh, in Luke. The third commandment is about taking the Lord's name in vain. And we can take the Lord's name in vain in many ways. Three of them are by using profanity, by speaking about God with frivolity, and using hypocrisy. And so Jesus says, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne. He taught us to also have a regard for the holiness of God's name as he taught us the Lord's prayer, hallowed be thy name. And so that's what Jesus says about taking God's name in vain. The fourth commandment is to remember to keep the Sabbath holy. And I have to confess, as a teacher, within two weeks of the end of a school year, I was tempted last Sunday to continue working on my sermon because one only has so many minutes and hours in the day. And I was not to the point of panic last Sunday, but I was getting there. And so after church, I was really tempted to work on my sermon. And then I thought, how hypocritical to work on a sermon about the Ten Commandments and then talk about keep the Sabbath day holy. Although I guess maybe I could have made the following Monday my Sabbath. I don't know. At any rate, this is the longest command that God gives us. It is also a very strong command, even though it is not necessarily written um, in command form. This is a serious commandment to God. It is a sign of the covenant with God. And so he wants us to remember to keep it holy. He used that word remember because the Israelites had been told this before and had forgotten the practice. So he's reminding them, this is serious. It's a capital offense in your law, and I expect it, so keep the Sabbath holy. And we could say more about that, obviously. What does Jesus say? He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And that was in Mark. The next commandment is also in positive form, and that is to honor your father and your mother. What does that mean for me personally? Honor my mother means I pester the life out of her because it's my job to make sure her life is full and vibrant and fun and uh, that, you know, she just doesn't wither in old age. So, but I also adore my mom. Um, and sometimes that's what people um, make, I don't know, do people question this? At any rate, um, I have always loved my parents. Uh, my parents have always been two of my most favorite people, which is kind of cool. And so uh, this past week, my mom has been very sick and I had a meeting on an evening that she was um, supposed to go to an appointment. And so I would have rather gone home and continued to prepare for my sermon. And as we were talking through you know, my schedule and her needs for the next day, she had said, you know, I really wish you could be available to drive me to my appointment. She's been really tired, really sick. And I thought, you know, I really wish I could too. And at the last minute, my meeting was canceled. So I immediately texted my mom my soon octogenarian mom, you didn't, I didn't tell you that, 
can text. Isn't that cool? I have a mom that um, can use technology quite well. Um, at any rate, she texted me and back and said, oh, good, you can drive me. So I let her know that I was available. As she was at her appointment, I thought she could handle the appointment. So I sat in the car. Internet and I, notebook and I, scrambling for a few more notes about my sermon. My mom's appointment ran late and long, and she apologized when she came to the car. And I said, you know, I didn't even know you were gone an hour or however long it was. Is that God's faithfulness in honoring my mom? I believe so. And that has happened to me over and over and over and over and over in my life. Interestingly, in the preface of the Ten Commandments, God mentions that he brought them out of Egypt as a reason for obedience. He mentions honoring our fathers and our mothers as a form of obedience as the Israelites are entering into the promised land. I just see that connection to be a rather interesting one. Uh, and there's many promises associated with this commandment. One of them is to live long. And that's both to us individually and to the nation of Israel collectively. What does Jesus say? Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So it doesn't mean we don't have honor for our parents. It just means they're not to be placed above you know, our love for God. And so as we continue, uh, we'll look at murder. Uh, you shall not murder. Um, I have not ever had any desire to murder anyone yet. <clears throat> but thinking about it is, we're told, just like killing somebody. Jesus said, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. The seventh commandment speaks about adultery and our chastity and our neighbor's chastity. This is condemned by sin and is considered an abomination by God. There is reason for this commandment. Just this week, I read about a pastor who committed adultery with a then 16-year-old girl. And this information came to light 20 years after. And so the article went on to discuss how that action had really hurt the girl, devastated her, um, obviously had lingering effects. Pastor hurt his family, his wife, and it goes without saying that his church was also hurt by this action because of not only committing the sin, but by keeping it a secret for all that time. Jesus says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that was from Matthew. The next commandment involves stealing. Um, I unfortunately, well, I, it's fortunate I work with these children, but the conditions are unfortunate. I work with a family of four children, and they have uh, begun a crime spree that none of us can understand or explain. And so we've been dealing with um, some burglary, some vandalism, uh, some problems that they are creating around the community. Uh, the chief of police in our community and a guidance counselor and I recently met to try to offer one another support, guidance, you know, assistance and help. And yet yesterday morning as I was finalizing preparation for my sermon, I was texted that the kids were in serious trouble because Friday after school they decided they were really um, going to break into a place and cause some serious vandalism. So I worry about what their summer is like but hope that maybe this is the last straw for them. We can also steal from God though, even though we claim to be believers. We can steal money or not offer money when it's needed. We sometimes can disobey 
God, when he requests us to do something, such as when he wants us to perform some kind of service for him. And as 1 Peter 1 says, we have been bought with a price, so he owns us, so he should expect our obedience. Jesus says, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And when I was a kid, I always thought, well, I don't have a tunic. I don't even think I knew what it was. So I didn't really worry about this commandment. But I can tell you now as an adult who still has that little red sports car, I am vulnerable you know, to people stealing from me. And if they do, I'm supposed to just offer them something else. The next commandment says you shall not bear false witness. And there are many ways that we can do this as humans. This is associated with formal court, but it can also be just in our casual conversation. Sometimes we can give false testimony by slander, by creating falsehoods, um, by exaggerating, or sometimes even by being silent. Um, sometimes if we don't defend someone when we know the truth, that's as bad as sharing false testimony. And so the problem with this commandment, um, the action of it could often lead to death of the one who is falsely accused. So God takes this seriously and wants us to as well. What does Jesus say? He says men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. He shares that in Matthew. And then the commandment about uh, coveting says you shall not covet your neighbor's possession. The actual Hebrew word for covet means to pant after. That's a really strong desire. Um, my one vice in life are cream cheese brownies. If you told me you were going to make cream cheese brownies today, you might see some panting after. And give me a glass of milk with it, and you will be my best friend. It's that sort of desire. <clears throat> and we can think of other examples, too. Interestingly, this commandment is the only one that deals with why and not how. And so God elaborates why we shouldn't cover our neighbor's possessions, because it leads to lots of other kinds of crimes and problems. So Jesus says about this, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. You know, what's the root of all evil? Um, I also have to apologize as I was working through the Ten Commandments this week and listening to Brian last week share um, about all of us being set apart as a holy nation. He mentioned an 11th commandment that I wasn't aware of. And so I would like to share that commandment with us now. I think this is what I heard. Thou shalt not use another's toothbrush, nor allow thine own toothbrush to be used, for it disgusteth you and causeth great germs to be spread and is no longer holy. Remember, he was talking about being set apart and how his toothbrush had to be set apart. If you aren't here, that just makes no sense. At any rate, what does Jesus say about all of the commandments? Jesus, as he was being questioned and tested by the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who were once again trying to catch him. He responded when they asked him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. If you look at the 10 commandments, that covers the first four, the relationship that we have with God. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That would be the next six commandments, how we are supposed to treat and relate with one another. And all the law continuing, and the prophets hang on these two particular commandments as Jesus shared. 
Notice that Jesus shares that in a positive light. And so those are the expectations. Yes, the law, the Ten Commandments, is a list of do's and don'ts. That's obvious. But it's more than that. It continues to show us that God is in a covenant relationship with us as he still remains to this day with the Israelites. Those Ten Commandments also reflect the character of God. But the story doesn't stop here. The chapter goes on. And so let's look at the response. What was the Israelites' response to being given the Ten Commandments? Well, if you look at this in parallel structure, here are God's actions. God spoke. He didn't just talk to them. He rumbled thunder. He flashed lightning. He sounded the trumpet. He arrived to the mountain in a pillar of fire. And so the mountain was smoking and on fire. He shared all these powerful effects. How did the Israelites react? They heard God. They felt the thunder and heard it. They saw the lightning and the effects of it. They heard the trumpet. If the thunder and lightning didn't get me, hearing a trumpet probably would have. They also saw the mountain, you know, being on fire and smoking. And they reacted out of fear. They trembled. But they also stayed at a distance. They wanted no more to do up close and personal with this God. And so they told Moses, you speak to him and then come and speak to us. And so this is our precursor to Jesus Christ being our mediator. And so just as Moses was the mediator with the Israelites between they and God, Jesus is ours now. The Israelites promised to listen to God. That lasted about that long, as we know. Um, And they were fearful that they would die if God spoke to them directly. So Moses then in turn said, don't be afraid. There is no need to be afraid. I think God spoke to the Israelites in this way to command their attention and to let them know that he is the authority. But Moses continues by saying, God has come to test you. Well, What's that test like? I give tests all the time. This was to test who God was. Is he really who he said he was? Will he be the kind of God they want to serve? The test also revealed his expectations. And finally, it revealed the Israelites' own weaknesses. Um, By looking at the Ten Commandments, we clearly can see our own shortcomings and how we need God's grace and forgiveness and help in order to be rescued um, from our own sins. This fear is not a horror fear. It's not horrific. Um, I liken it to, um, once again, dealing with my parents. When I was a kid in school, my parents attended my sisters and my parent-teacher conferences every year or so. And so my parents uh, would hear the message from their teachers, your kids are good. There are no discipline problems. They're well-behaved. They're good in school, although my grades were better. That's beside the point. But the message my parents always heard were, there are no problems or issues with your kids. The reason for that is because the message we heard at home was, you will behave at school. You will do what the teachers tell you. You will get your education. And if you by chance get in trouble at school, you will get double whatever the punishment is there. That fear kept my sister on the straight and narrow, trust me. And my parents really weren't all that mean once in a while. Not really. At any rate, this is also not the end of the story. Um, Imagine your response. Um, I try to liken what my response would be to going to July 4th fireworks. 
This is non-negotiable in my life. We will go to July 4th fireworks. And the reason for that is because I lived in a country, communist country, where freedom doesn't exist. The government tells everyone what to do and how to do it. And so at the uh, July 4th fireworks here in New York, my favorite fireworks are those thunder boomers. You know, that rattle the trees and shake the earth and make your heart just feel like it's going to pound out of your chest. Those are my favorite fireworks. Why? Because to me, that's the sound of freedom. Um, and the more the better, even though I am essentially a quiet person. And so I think of maybe that experience being what it must have been like to be with the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai. So try to imagine what your response would have been. Maybe some of you would have ducked into a cave with me. And so as we are drawing to a close, let's talk about what God's ultimate uh, response was. We've heard the Israelites tried to imagine what our own is. What was God's? As we know, the Israelites continued sinning, breaking the conditions of covenants that God had laid before them. And so God had to come up with an adjustment to his system. Even though God never broke his promises, he decided to try to make it a little easier for mankind. There is a reason why I walked us through the Ten Commandments by telling us what Jesus said all the way through. And the reason for that is because Jesus knew the law. He practiced the law. He taught the law to his disciples and continues to teach it to us today so that we know how to live by the law. But he also fulfilled the law. In Matthew 5, 17, he tells us this himself. And he says, moral law is valid for all time and applies to all men. He also told us he came to fulfill the law and not to abolish it. And all that really means is that we are no longer bound by ceremonial law that the Israelites had to practice. If I had to follow all the ceremonial law about asking forgiveness, you know, to try to figure out which animal to sacrifice in which way, I probably would have forgotten all of it. And so we are no longer bound by that ceremonial law thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus fulfills this pattern of redemption in the Old Testament. God gave a covenant, expected obedience. Israelites disobeyed. God redeemed them by another covenant or by offering them another way to ask for forgiveness. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see this a lot in the Old Testament and how it connects with the New Testament. Jesus became the fulfillment of this elaborate sacrificial system. We don't have to worry anymore about which animal we have to sacrifice. One person has become the sacrifice for all of our sins, for all time, for all mankind. Jesus also never sinned. He was the only one to keep the law perfectly. He never needed to sacrifice for his own sin. And so he could be our perfect sacrifice. And last, uh, as we look at what God's ultimate response was, um, let's realize that his only son did die, as I said, for all mankind. So this was the complete fulfillment of the covenant. In other words, God gave us a way out in order for us to repent and make um, atonement for our sins. And by the way, a way out is the meaning of Exodus. I find that parallel to be interesting. And so what is our response? What's your response today to the Ten Commandments? Is it just an interesting historical story? Or we do, think of, do we think about as individuals and as Christians, how are we to respond? We have a choice. 
We can live in freedom within the moral law God has provided us and accept his grace. And we can accept his son as our ultimate sacrifice to pay for our own sins and to live the good life. Or we don't have to. It is our choice to be obedient to God or not. The Ten Commandments is also our story. As Brian has been sharing through our walk through Exodus, God makes all things new again. This is our story. We are a part of this. The Ten Commandments story is applicable to all men, every man who recognizes his need for forgiveness and to be delivered from the bondage of sin. The Ten Commandments also give us a reflection of our own sins so that we can deal with them. The Ten Commandments represent moral law, instructions for life, relationship expectations with God and each other. We can either accept that moral law or walk away from it and not accept it. Worse yet, we can just try doing things on our own. Um, I don't know about you, but when I've tried that, it's not turned out so well. Uh, We can be a part of the family by repenting our sins and accepting Jesus' sacrifice or not. We have the choice. God invites us to live this good life, the life that he has given to us, complete with moral law to protect us and to guide us. We can either accept it, we can accept his son, or we can just not. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come up uh, as we draw service to a close today. Actually, worship pair, I should say. The question is, where are we today? Where are we with the Ten Commandments? What's the application of the Ten Commandments to us? What's the same as it was for the Israelites? We can obey or we can choose not to. Only it's better for us because we have Jesus as our sacrifice to be able to help us repent of our sins over and over. What's the invitation for us today in our walk with God? It sounds so simple, but it's to acknowledge our sin, seek repentance, accept Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice. We no longer have to go through all these practices and ceremonies. We just trust Jesus and accept him, and then we obey and we follow a life that's pleasing to God. And so I'll end uh, my sermon today with the obligatory Dallas Willard quote. I get bonus points by doing that. Dallas Willard, uh, believe it or not, speaks about the Ten Commandments, and he said, some current critics of the United States Supreme Court like to point out that it does not allow the Ten Commandments, though written upon the walls of its own chambers, to be displayed in public schools. I have a lot to say about that. But where do we find churches, right or left, that put them on their walls? The Ten Commandments really aren't very popular anywhere. This is so in spite of the fact that even a fairly general practice of them would lead to a solution of almost every problem of meaning and order now facing Western societies, and would I dare say all societies. They are God's best information on how to lead a basically decent human existence. So where are we? How popular are God's Ten Commandments and his moral law with you? Better still, have you accepted his ultimate sacrifice and his son, Jesus Christ, to atone for the many sins that we also um, commit? Let me invite you to stand as we consider how to respond.